0: to see y'all tonight. I think we still got some seats over here, guys. Come on in. Um, This is our third night of this particular study uh, that we are doing, and what we are doing over tonight, and two more nights, I think, before our journey together gathering happens, uh, is we are looking at an interesting phrase that is used several times in the New Testament. And that phrase, depending on the translation that you're using, is the saying is trustworthy. Um, In the Greek language, that phrase literally means the word is faithful. And this happens five times in the New Testaments where we see this phrase in 1 Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 2, Titus 3. And the one that we're going to look at tonight is 1 Timothy 3. So if you have your Bibles or you have your device, swipe or flip or open to 1 uh, Timothy 3. Let's get there together. I want you to have your Bible open in front of you for you to see this. Um, so so in, the time, in the five times that we see this phrase used, the saying is trustworthy. No surprise, it's then followed by a saying some truth from Scripture. And as Pastor Russell shared two weeks ago when we started this study, the first night that we looked at it, there's no such thing as a canon within the canon, meaning that there's no such thing as one Scripture that's more important than another Scripture. We have to be real careful with that. Because honestly, the Word tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. What's the first word of that particular verse? All, all means in the Greek? All, yeah, all means all. All scripture is breathed out by God. So we shouldn't advocate being red-letter Christians as if somehow Jesus' words that he spoke that are recorded in the Gospels and Acts are somehow more important than Leviticus. That sounds very modern and evangelical, but it's not faithful to Scripture because all Scripture is breathed out by God. So when we see this little phrase, the saying is trustworthy, what's it pointing to? What's the point of this little phrase? Well, we don't know precisely why the phrase is used in the scripture because, honestly, the text isn't that explicit about the matter. But as we learned in week one, this phrase may have indicated that these five different sayings that begin with the saying is trustworthy actually might have been catechistic principles that the early church was learning together and memorizing together. Remember at this time in the New Testament, the New Testament itself was still being written and still being assembled together. Um, So more than likely at this time, the only book that was in circulation was the book of James, probably Paul's letter to the Galatians and maybe even some of the Synoptic Gospels, but not much else was completed at the time that, obviously, we're looking at 1 Timothy 3 here. Um, so for the early church to learn these trustworthy principles together was both helpful and important. Think about how we memorize Scripture today. I grabbed one of these little cards from my truck earlier. It's a Scripture memory card. Nothing fancy. but um, And there's a Scripture on it, 1 John 3, nine. I haven't memorized this one yet. It's new. No one is born of God. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay? Something I'm memorizing. Now there's another one in my truck that's got an Old Testament passage on it that I'm learning too. So if I'm going to memorize this verse, what's the technique that I'm going to use? Don't overthink that question. What am I going to do? I'm going to read it over and over and over again. I'm going to repeat it until it's ingrained in my brain, until I begin to understand it, until I can be able to say it without even looking at this card, right? Um, That's really the method that we use when we memorize Scripture. And that's all that catechism or catechesis is. It means to repeat, And so it's a discipline or a technique, and that's the way that we learn information many times. Now again, Scripture is not explicit about the particular phrase, the saying is trustworthy. It's not explicit about how it's used, but the thinking here is that the principles that come after this phrase in the New Testament are like foundational truths that the early church, again, would be memorizing together with them. And it makes sense, particularly when you look at the phrase that Pastor Omar walked us through last Wednesday night. It's up there on the screen. It's 1 Timothy 1.5. This is the one we looked at last week. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. What's the saying? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Talk about a foundational Truth that needs to be burned into our heads and our hearts. It's that. That one little statement right there answers several powerful questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus according to that? He's the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah who has come. And second question would be, why did he come? It's a very important. Who is Jesus and why did he come? Why did he come? He came into the world to do what? save sinners. Again, this is basic foundational truth. Theology 101. And why does it matter? Third question would be why does it matter? Because I'm a sinner. That's why it matters. If you get those questions wrong, you get the gospel wrong. So I hope you're already beginning to appreciate these trustworthy sayings, and tonight we're going to look at how this phrase is used in 1 Timothy 3. So let's look at the whole chapter in context. I want to read the whole thing so that we get a sense of how this particular trustworthy saying is being used, all right? So again, if you just kind of walked in, we're in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1. The Word of God says this, the saying is trustworthy. His own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For as someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Verse six He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon but i am writing these things so that i am writing these things to you so that if i delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of god which is the church of the living god a pillar and buttress of the truth great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness he was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the spirit seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed on in the world and taken up in glory Amen to that, right? Excuse me. So the trustworthy saying here is specifically about the noble task of an elder. Or as the ESV says, an overseer. But before we dive into all of this, it's important to understand the overall point of what Paul is really doing in this letter. Because he's written it to young Pastor Timothy. And the first seven verses of chapter three are all we're really going to focus on tonight. But the whole context of the chapter matters and has bearing on the first seven verses that we're going to look at. Because the whole point of this particular letter is to instruct the church on how it should conduct itself. Brothers and sisters, how a church operates is important. And Scripture is not silent about how a church should operate. As God's church, we're not some entrepreneurial enterprise that we can just do whatever we want. I think um, Mark Zuckerberg's um, motto in 2014 for Facebook was move fast and break things. And boy, did they. But how pagans operate in the business world is not to be the template for how God's church operates, right? We, we don't get to organize ourselves any way that we want. We don't get to govern ourselves any way that we want. No, God in His Word has laid out a framework of how the local church is to conduct itself. And 1 Timothy is actually a, a, a letter from a seasoned pastor to a rookie pastor, from Paul. To Timothy. And in chapter 1, what Paul does is he warns Timothy about false teachers. So important. Because in all of the New Testament, did you realize that only the book of Philemon is the only book that does not have a warning in it about false teachers? All the other books in, all the, other books in the New Testament have a warning about false teachers. And that war, those warnings apply to us today in this local church. In chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, what Paul does is he gives Timothy instructions about worship and prayer. And in chapter 3 that we just read, we are given instructions about the leadership of the church, the structure of the local church. And Paul speaks here of two ordained offices that we just read about. One is elder and the other is deacon, as we looked at in verses 1 through 13. 13. But then he speaks about the congregation itself in verses 14 and 15. Did you notice that? And then in, in verse 16 of chapter 3, he ends the chapter talking about who? Jesus. That's right. So think about this. In this one chapter, chapter 3, Paul instructs this young pastor about the shepherds of the church, the servants of the church, The sheep in the church and the savior of the church. Russell isn't even here to appreciate the alliteration, is he? Yeah, no, he's not. Nah. Y'all have to let him know. So the trustworthy saying that we're going to look at tonight applies to that very first section where he's talking about the shepherds of the church. And if you're visiting with us or you're relatively new to coming to McGregor... um, our polity, or governance structure here in our church is what's called elder-led congregationalism. And if that's new to you, it's okay because it was actually new to our church uh, in 2016 when the congregation voted to affirm a new constitution that was structured in terms of our governance in the form of elder-led congregationalism. And that was actually an act of repentance because for decades our church Did not pay attention or really consider that God's word had much to say about how a church is structured or how we should govern ourselves. But it does. And now, by God's grace, we pay attention to that. And what we see in the leadership of the New Testament church is a plurality of godly men who lead the church, primarily through the way they teach the Bible. See, it's not one man who leads the church. But it's a plurality. Our church is, to, is blessed to be led by, well, as of our last member meeting, 13 elders. And together, those elders shepherd and lead this particular flock. But as we as elders, we don't make all the decisions for the church. In fact, the most significant decisions that are made in this church are not made by the elders of this church. They are made by the congregation of this church. Hence, elder-led congregationalism. So elder-led congregationalism is a plurality of godly men leading the congregation and that congregation has a voice that really matters, particularly in the, in the major decisions that need to be decided that would have an impact on the gospel integrity of this church. See, as God's church, we're called to be different. We are distinct from the world we're set apart from the world that's true in how we live and that's true in how we're organized and how we're led and the trustworthy saying that we find in first Timothy 3 1 impacts how we conduct ourselves so let's see what the impact is as we begin to move through our text so the first thing that we see is the catechistic principle This is probably, verse 1 is probably the specific statement that the church would have been repeating to itself. What does verse 1 say? Look at it again in your Bibles. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Okay. Anybody know who R. Kent Hughes is? He wrote a very famous and great book, if you haven't ever read it. Gentlemen. It's called Disciplines of a Godly Man. I highly recommend it to you. And and Hughes says this about verse one. He says, verse one is an ecclesial axiom that as the years go by, what leaders are in microcosm, the church congregation will become in macrocosm. Think about why leaders matter, friends. Friends. Hughes is making an excellent point here. Congregations become like their leaders. Everything is affected by leadership, whether it's a good effect or a bad effect. Everything is affected by leadership. And that's true whether it's in a church or in a family or in a business or some other organization, even the government. (laughs) Yeah, I won't. I'll hold it. My my boys were growing up at a time when Disney and Pixar were making good movies. And uh, one of our favorites still to this day is is A Bug's Life. And one of my favorite lines from that movie is when Hopper, the leader of the grasshoppers, says to one of his subordinates, first rule of leadership, everything is your fault. (laughs) Now, I've been a pastor here at this church for 21 and a half years, and that's true. (laughs) I've been a dad for 20 years, and that's also true in that realm too. But even so, it is a noble task if someone aspires to be an elder. Or the word of God is not true because that's what verse one says, right? That's the important principle here. Now the word that gets translated here to overseer is is episkopos and in modern English that is typically rendered as bishop or as we see it here if you've got an ESV it's overseer right and there are two other words used in the New Testament about this same leadership office that's referred to here in verse 1 one is presbyteros which is usually translated as elder in modern English the other word is poimen, which is usually translated as pastor or shepherd in modern English. Now, some churches and denominations make a distinction between those three words, and they create different leadership roles or offices based on those three different roles. But at McGregor, we see all three of those words pertaining to the same New Testament office, the office of elder or pastor. So here at McGregor, elder and pastor are synonymous. They mean the exact same thing. We don't call someone who is not an elder. We don't call someone who is, well, I just had a brain, brain lapse there. <laughs> <clears throat> we don't call anyone a pastor who isn't an elder and vice versa. Let's put it that way. Make sense? So what these three Greek words do is they really give us a full picture of what an elder and pastor does. What do they do? An overseer. They watch over the church. That's what an elder pastor does. Uh, pastor, shepherd. They shepherd the flock. Elder. They are spiritually mature men. And just so we're clear about why we believe that these three terms for a church leader are referring to the same office of elder or pastor is because all three of these words are used interchangeably in 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. I want you to look at this passage. Again, 1 Peter, Peter's writing here. He says, So I exhort the elders, that's presbyteros, so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, again, presbyteros, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, poimen, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising what? Oversight. Episcopos. Not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Again, in two verses, all three words are used interchangeably about the same role. The role of elder slash pastor. Same thing, one office. And here's the deal: elders are not CEOs, <laughs> they're not dictators, they're not the boss. They're also not organizational visionaries who blaze a trail to change the world. That's not what pastors and elders are. And actually, they don't even have to be eloquent speakers that captivate people's attention with their charisma. No, they're shepherds. Bottom line, they are shepherds, and they oversee God's sheep, and that's a messy job. (laughs) Just like it was for Moses. When he was in the wilderness, tending sheep. Just like it was for David when he was in the tending sheep. It's a messy job. And Paul says here in verse 1 that if anyone aspires to that, if anyone is stretching towards that role, it's a good and noble thing. But it comes with qualifications. He goes next into qualifications. Qualifications. And what I want to do is I just want to move through these qualifications just quickly one at a time, beginning in verse 2. Look at that first qualification. He says, an elder must be above reproach. It means blameless, but it does not mean without sin because there's no such thing as a man nor a human being without sin, right? There's no such thing as an elder without sin, especially me. Uh, I was working the other day on my laptop and went to print something, and I got one of those errors, you know when you get one of those error messages that it didn't work? And the error message was, your printer needs attention. And I thought, oh, if it was just that simple. (laughs) There are so many things in my life that need attention, (laughs) not just the printer. Why? Because I'm a sinner. So is every single elder in our church. So sinlessness is not what's in view here when he says above reproach. Essentially, above reproach means that if an accusation of wrongdoing is is leveled against a man, that accusation's probably not going to stick. Why? Because of the man's character and his track record. That's why. And this type of blamelessness is really sort of the heading under which all the rest of the qualifications that we're going to talk about fall. He is to be blameless. He is to be above reproach. And then in verses 2 through 7, it describes what that would look like. What does above reproach look like? Well, we find it as we keep reading. So what would it look like? Well, he'd be the husband of one wife, first off. See that there in beginning of verse 2? This phrase could literally be translated as one-womaned man. It's the exact same thing that applies to deacons in in the latter part of the passage. And it's not necessarily about marital status. That's not the point of it. It's not a critique about divorced men either. But it's about sexual purity, plain and simple. The question is, is this man's desires and affections, are they towards his wife or are they also towards other women as well? And please don't miss the fact that this particular qualification is at the top of the list of what it means to be above reproach. Why? Because this is where men in the church, particularly in church leadership, typically fall. I don't have to tell you that. Bill Gothard, Ravi Zacharias, Bob Coy, Ted Haggard, Bill Hybels, Perry Noble, Brian Houston, Carl Lentz, Jimmy Swagger, Go on and on and on, but I won't. And while this requirement would never be on the application to be a CEO of a corporation or even run for president, it does matter to God's church, right? Because the faithful shepherding of God's church cannot occur if a man is not faithful to his wife. It's that plain and simple. And since human marriage is something that points to the ultimate marriage, between Jesus, the groom, and us, his bride, the consequences of marital infidelity go way beyond just the elder and his immediate family. It ricochets and echoes and affects the entire church. Must be the husband of one wife. Has to be sober-minded, that's what's next. Sober-minded means not given to any extremes in his behavior. The old-fashioned word is temperate. It means a man who has a sound mind, who is clear-headed in his thinking, so he can be watchful over the flock. Why? Well, because there will always be wolves trying to attack the flock, trying to endanger the sheep, and an elder cannot be distracted by his own emotional roller coasters, somebody that's got to be clear-headed, sober-minded, is Paul's word there. He also has to be self-controlled. That's next. Self-controlled simply means somebody who has a serious attitude towards spiritual things. If he doesn't take his own spiritual life and the spiritual life of other people seriously, then he shouldn't be an elder doesn't mean the man is humorless. But it means he has a serious level tone when it comes to growing in Christ. Because he knows it's not a given. He's also to be respectable. Meaning that there's a baseline of conduct in this guy's life on how he handles himself with others. And he does so in such a way that other people respect him he's respectable paul says he also has to be what what's next hospitable does that surprise anybody when i first discovered that that was a qualification for an elder it kind of surprised me Hmm. hospitable again this the the word literally means love of stranger So the the question here with this qualification is, is this man's life and home open to welcoming others in? Including people he's never met before. That kind of openness is a requirement because it's a matter of spiritual character. Because who did Jesus come for? To seek and to save the lost, right? (laughs) Right? An elder has to be hospitable to those he doesn't know. And then what's next? Able to what? Teach. Teach. Some of your translations may say apt to teach. This is about the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word. And it is a required responsibility of a man who desires the office of elder. No doubt about it. The question is not, does this man dazzle people with his eloquence and his humorous stories? But the question is, can this man faithfully teach the scriptures to seven-year-olds and 70-year-olds? That's what that qualification is about. Because that's the biggest way that elders shepherd the flock is through their teaching of the scriptures. Now, to be clear, the gift of teaching is just that. It's a spiritual gift. that's given by God through the Holy Spirit. And if a brother in our church doesn't have the gift of teaching, that's okay. It doesn't make him any less a Christian if he doesn't have the gift of teaching. In fact, it's my position that all these characteristics that are listed in verses 2-3 through are ones that all Christian men should have minus being able to teach or for the single man being the husband of one wife. What Paul is doing is he's creating a baseline. At minimum, your leaders have to be here. And here is where all church members should be. Because... What are elders actually doing? Well, they are setting a pattern for other people in the congregation to follow. Now, so far, if you've noticed, all of these have been positive qualifications. <laughs> Meaning, this is what an elder should be. But as Paul continues to share these specific qualifications of Timothy, he shifts to what an elder should not be, Right? What's next? Not a what? Not a drunkard. Not a drunkard. Now, to be clear, the Bible does not prohibit drinking alcohol. But it does condemn drunkenness as a sin, clearly. Actually, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 makes that real clear. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Total abstinence is not required by the Bible. But drinking in excess is... Because it takes away our ability to think rightly. Remember what one of the qualifications of an elder is? To be sober-minded. And we, all people, not just elders, we, all people in the congregation, are to be controlled and led by the Holy Spirit of God, not some foreign substance. So a man who continually does that and gets drunk is demonstrating that he's an unbeliever. And as a result, should not be considered to lead God's church. What's next? There's several that are sort of clustered together. Not violent, but gentle. Not quarrelsome. So this is not just a warning against someone who's looking to pick a fight physically. (laughs) It would include that. You don't want that kind of person as an elder but it's a warning about having a leader in the church that's a hothead. One who's not only accustomed to getting his way all the time, but he has a priority to get his way all the time. An elder should actually be inclined towards peace. The, the, the Greek word that's used for not quarrelsome is a ah, machos. a ah, meaning not. Machos, meaning a bully. An elder is to not be a bully. Again, this is baseline stuff. But it's amazing how pastoral authority is abused in the church today by men who hold the title of pastor and act like bullies because they're God's man evidently Anybody in here ever worked for a bully? You've ever had a supervisor that was a bully? A couple of us, yeah. Some of the maybe the rest of you don't don't want to be honest and that's okay. It's not fun working for a bully. Is it? Nobody wants to be under the leadership of a bully. You're always walking on eggshells. Everybody's always whispering behind the bully's back. That's no way to lead a church. If a man's a bully, he's not qualified to be an elder. And, And why would that be a qualification? Think about that. Why would this particularly be a qualification? Well, two reasons. One, an elder does not lead by himself in God's church. It's a plurality of godly men. So someone who's always accustomed to getting their way, well, that's not the goal in plural elder leadership. It's discovering God's will together. And two is more basic than that. A shepherd doesn't beat his sheep. If you you were raised on a farm or been around farm animals, you've never seen a farmer or a shepherd beat a sheep with their cane or their staff, right? The, the, The shepherd's crook is used to help the sheep keep the sheep from eating itself off of a cliff. Sheep are not that bright. They have the smallest brain to body size ratio in the animal kingdom. All right? This is the metaphor that God uses for his people. But shepherds don't use their staff to beat the sheep. They use the staff to guide the sheep. Now shepherds can certainly be forceful with wolves, but not with the sheep that God has given them. We don't lead by intimidation in the church. That is not of God. What's next? On the heels of that, not a lover of what? Not a lover of money. Why would this matter? Ever thought about that? Why would this matter as a qualification for an elder? Well, if he's a lover of money meaning money is an idol to him, he's going to pursue ministry for his own personal gain. Right? Not for the health and what's best for the church. He would use God's church for selfish reasons. And he'll never be satisfied. You know that? Because our idols never satisfy us. Only Christ satisfies us. The book of Jude in verse 12 calls false teachers fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead and uprooted. That's the description of a pastor who's in it for the money. And oh boy, are there pastors that are in it for the money. Brothers and sisters, don't let the the net worth of the prosperity gospel preachers fool you. They may have worldly success, they may have impressive net worth. In fact, they do. Joyce Meyer's net worth is 25 million. Benny Hens is 60 million. Joel Osteen's is 100 million. T.D. Jake's is 150 million. Kenneth Copeland's net worth is $760 million. So they've got money, but they are dead trees. And they don't and they won't ever produce godly fruit because they're peddling a dead gospel that has no power. And, and the, the not a lover of money qualification for an elder is designed to protect the sheep from that kind of leader. So, those are the qualifications. Now, not only does Paul give Timothy qualifications, but he also gives him warnings. In verses four through seven, he gives three different warnings, and, and the warnings are slightly different than the qualifications. Because the qualifications are just that. They're characteristics that either should be or should not be present in a potential elder. The elder should be able to demonstrate those before ever becoming an elder. However, in each of the three warnings that Paul mentions here to Timothy, there is an explicit reason or a consequence that is given if those warnings are not heeded. Now, why would Paul do that in his instruction to Timothy? Well, frankly, because of the pressure that comes with leadership. See, the work of shepherding is never done. Some of you may have jobs or in your previous career had a job where you went to work, you clocked in, you worked, you clocked out, and then you went home. And when you went home, your job didn't go home with you. That's never the case for the work of a pastor. It's the reality of the role of an elder. And that will always be the case until the good shepherd returns and we all go home with him safely. But in the meantime, the sheep (laughs) must be cared for. And because of his experience, the Apostle Paul knew that, that the as that flock grew, that Timothy, Timothy was shepherding, the pressure and the pace of shepherding would eventually bear down on him. And he might buckle under the pressure. And Paul didn't want him to cave to the fear of man. You know what the fear of man is? Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man is a snare, but those who trust in the Lord are protected. Paul knew that Timothy would face moments where he could could say, yeah, yeah, I really like that guy. I really think that guy would be a good elder. And I need help. I need a lot of help. And the pressure of leadership would be bearing down on Timothy for him to discount the qualifications. Take the easy route. Fear of man is a very real thing, and church leaders are not the only one that are tempted by it. You know this in your own life. Ask yourself in any given situation, whose approval am I seeking? <laughs> Who am I trying to please? See, when we do something or don't do something because we want the approval of someone else, it's a snare, it's a trap. And when we do something or don't do something that we're, because we're afraid of someone's Disapproval, that's also a snare and a trap. See, God knows your heart and he knows my heart. He knows whether or not his approval or the approval of other people matter most to us. And the frailty of the human heart, particularly with church leaders, is why Paul gives these three warnings. Now, the first warning is a corporate warning in verses four and five. Look at it with me. Look at this first warning. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Great rhetorical question that assumes a negative answer. And that negative answer would be, he can't, right? So in the aforementioned qualifications that we just looked at, Paul was addressing a potential elder's personal life. But this first warning is about his family life. And it's a corporate warning because there's a one-to-one correlation here between the warning and the damage that could be done to the church if the warning is not heeded. A local body of Christ Could very well be at stake if this warning is not heeded and so the issue is a potential elder must manage his home well that's the bottom line of what paul's getting at he can't be one person at church and then a different person at home he can't be one way as a church member and another way as a husband and a father See, a wife and children are a huge stewardship for a man. They are a gift from God to a man. And the extent, to the extent that a man stewards and leads his wife and children well, he could do the same thing with God's family in a local church. That's the principle that Paul's getting at here with Timothy. But if he can't lead well at home, he won't lead well in the church, and so he doesn't need to be an elder. And regardless of whether a man is an elder or not in the church, every family is like a small church. And every small church that is a family has a pastor. And that pastor's name is Dad like it or not. Because dad is the shepherd over his wife and kids. That's the way God's designed it. You notice I'm not having any discussions here about female pastors and elders because the text is clear. We're talking about a specific gender. And if that offends anybody, the reading of the text is clear. God has designed the family to have one leader and that is the husband, the father. God has designed the church to have multiple men, a plurality of men, leading his church. What's going on here is that both the family and the church are designed by God and they mirror each other. They are not to contradict each other. And our culture that we live in today has both all screwed up in lots of different ways. But we're not going to do that here. Think about what God has called every husband and father to do. Gentlemen, you know this. (laughs) If you've been around a while, you already know this. God has called every husband and father to set an example, a godly example for his wife and children. He he, we we show our wife and our kids what it looks like to follow Jesus day in and day out. We, We serve our family in tangible ways, right? We resolve conflicts. We foster unity when there are arguments and fights and on and on. So at a bare minimum, that's precisely what elders do in a local church. So a man's leadership of his own family indicates his potential to be able to lead the church family well. So that's a corporate warning, but there's two personal warnings and we'll end on this. Verses six and seven. Two personal warnings. First one's in verse 6. Paul says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. (laughs) A recent convert. You know what a new Christian needs? Time. (laughs) Time to grow. I was a big hot mess when God saved me at 13. (laughs) A new Christian needs time to grow. They need to be discipled by other Christians that are farther down the road spiritually than they are. And that takes time. Ed Welch in his uh, book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says this. He says, sanctification is like a clumsy, slow walk rather than a light switch that we turn from off to on. I love that. That's so true. The whole point of Paul's instruction here in looking for elders is to observe a pattern of faithfulness in their life before putting them in a leadership role. The last thing a young Christian needs is to be put in a position of leadership in a local church because that kind of rapid acceleration into a leadership role is gonna fill them up with pride. That's what that little phrase there, puffed up with conceit, is referring to. You ever had somebody blow smoke in your face? Smoking a cigar or cigarette? Conversation got tense and they blew smoke in your face? That's rarely intended as a sign of hospitality and friendship, right? It's just not. It's an offense. It's offensive. Just like pride is offensive to God. What was Satan's first sin? Pride. Pride? What was Adam and Eve's first sin? Same thing. Pride. And this is a real temptation in the local church to put a new believer or a young Christian in a leadership role, and Paul tells Timothy, do not do that. Yeah, it'll hurt the church. But this is more of a personal warning because if the new believer gets puffed up with pride and conceit, he may experience the same condemnation that the devil incurred for his pride. And if that happens, we'll discover in that moment that we didn't put a young believer into the position of elder, we put an unbeliever into the position of elder. Because you don't lose your salvation. But you can reveal that you were never saved. But there's a second personal warning, and that's in verse 7. Look at it with me. He says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. (laughs) One thing's for sure. Once a man is an elder, he is associated and identified with the local church he serves in. There's no doubt about that. Pastor Kerry, would you remind everyone how long you've served here at McGregor Baptist Church? 39 years. 39 years, okay. And we praise God for that, don't we? Yeah. Now, if I was a betting man, <laughs> I would wager that 95% of the people who know Kerry, whether they come to this church or not, they associate Kerry with McGregor Baptist Church. That kind of happens over 39 years. And to an outsider, a church leader is someone who represents a specific church, right? And for an outsider, the reputation that an elder reflects is one that's either well, positive, or poor upon the reputation of the church that that elder serves. And what does our enemy Satan like to do? He would like nothing more than to discredit the reputation of a local church, right? An outsider does not really know what a church is like because they're an outsider. But they do know if the church elder that they know has a poor reputation and that poor reputation impacts their view of that local church. This again is more of a personal warning. Because even though this would hurt that specific church, the person, the personal fall into disgrace that being referred to here, that snare of the devil at the end of verse 7, that seems really perilous to the potential elder. So much so that Timothy is saying, you don't want this. It's dangerous both to the church and the potential elder. So maybe a good question to ask as we wrap up is why does any of this matter? There's a couple of elders that are in this room. But most of you that are in this room aren't elders, right? But many of you are members of this congregation. So why does this matter? Why is it a trustworthy saying that if a man aspires to be an elder, it's a noble task? Why? Why does that matter? Because of God's authority. I don't know how the word authority strikes you. For some of you, it strikes you as a negative thing. For some of you, it, it strikes you as a positive thing. Maybe For some of you, it's a coin toss, depending on who we're talking about in authority, right? <laughs> and for a lot of people, it's negative because human authority is often abused, even in the church. Human authority can be abused. And that's because we forget how God has designed human authority and why he's designed human authority the way he has. Typically, the world in the world, authority only benefits those who have it, not those who are under it. But God has designed human authority to bless those who are under it Some of you have seen that. When you've watched your, your kids or your grandkids as five-year-olds being coached in soccer. Ever watched a soccer game with five-year-olds? <laughs> the beginning of the season, they're sitting on the ground playing with grasshoppers as the ball rolls by. Right? I, coached, I coached my boys a lot of years in soccer. But a good coach knows how to motivate those kids and help them understand what the goal of the game is, and that's to get the ball in the right goal. And so by the end of the season, all the herd is going in the same direction with the ball, and they get it in the goal, and everybody goes nuts, parents and all, right? What do you know about that coach in that moment? You know that that coach understands how God has designed authority. It's designed to bless those who are under that authority. Some of you grew up in homes where mom and dad were not perfect, but they loved Jesus and they loved each other. And you saw them exercise, albeit in fits and starts, but they exercised authority over you. And that authority was predominantly used to bless you God's authority is designed to bless those who are under it. We see it in the local church as well. This is what Paul is getting at. That for elders, those who shepherd the flock, we are to exercise the authority that God has given us in a way that blesses those who are under our care. You realize nobody has innate authority. No human being has innate authority. All human authority has been delegated to us. A husband is not the ultimate authority over his wife. He is the primary authority over his wife. But if he's a church member and he begins to abuse his wife, there is an authority, a higher than that man. And that would be the elders of his church. All authority has been given to you and to me. It's been delegated. God is the only one who has ultimate authority in all things. So the federal government, the Lee County tax assessor, your boss at work, the elders at your church, Ladies, your husband. All those are expressions of God's good authority, how He has set it up to design those who are under it to be blessed by it. Is authority abused in this world? Absolutely it is. But the church has a particular stewardship. And so paying attention to how authority is used in the Scripture so that we might implement it in a faithful way here in this local church is of huge importance. And while you might not be directly involved because you're not an elder, you're to hold our elders accountable because as the congregation, you have the final say on things that white might affect the gospel integrity of this church. It's a beautiful thing that God set up in His church. It doesn't operate like anything else in the world, and that's by design. There's a beautiful statement that King David makes as his life really draws to a close. He's near death. And he reflects back on his life and how God used him to lead and be king under his rule over God's people Israel. And just before his death, he describes human authority by saying this. In 2 Samuel 23, he says, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like the rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Does that sound like abusive authority to you? No. God has designed human authority to bless those who are under it, like a sunrise, like a refreshing rain that brings growth. And because of that good and wise design of human authority, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. God's good. He's good to us individually and he's good to us as a congregation. And he has been very, very patient with us over the years that this church has existed and he continues to be. But as we see things in Scripture that we must be faithful to, we must be faithful to them and be obedient to them. This is a trustworthy statement. If anyone aspires to be to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task.